Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice, because I am shaken. But I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The psalmist says, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Some time ago at a church that I attended, a young mother of five died after a long struggle with leukemia. She had been in the prayers of so many for such a long time during her struggle. We looked forward to the day that we would see her at the church healthy, praising God for her healing. That never happened. My thoughts were not so much on this young woman after hearing of her death. Instead, I began to think about her family and the families at the church who had been so dedicated in their commitment to pray for her. How disappointed and discouraged they must feel, I thought. How painful it must be for them to have prayed so fervently in faith for a healing that never came. Why, God? Why? Why did a beautiful young mother of five have to die? She should have been able to live to watch her children grow into adulthood. Why weren't our prayers effective? For some, this is enough of a challenge to their faith that they decide that there is no God. If there is a God, or if there is a God, he is powerless to prevent suffering, to control evil, and therefore not worth worshiping. They give up on all they have believed. They join the ranks of skeptics and cynics who long ago decided that the very idea of an all-powerful God was childish myth. What about our church family, I thought? What about them? What will they be thinking? What will be their response to this challenge to their faith? C.S. Lewis was a great writer of popular theology. One of his most famous books is The Problem of Pain. He often lectured on this problem and presented a well-thought-out, practical, biblical understanding of the pain problem to his audiences. But later in his life, he experienced the problem firsthand. He met a woman, his beloved Joy Davidman. After a brief friendship, it was discovered that Joy had bone cancer crippling, painful killing. Lewis married her, and together they faced the struggle to prolong her life as long as possible. 
Lewis prayed fervently, and yet Joy's disease progressed. He watched her valiant struggle. He agonized as he saw that all hope was gone. Joy died, and Lewis entered his shadowlands, a time of spiritual darkness. He discovered that his intellectual understanding of pain and suffering was of little help in the face of his loss. Why God? His faith was being tried. At one point in his struggle, he wrote, what chokes every prayer and every hope is the memory of all the prayers we offered and all the false hopes that we had. I've been confronted with this question by people in the midst of such personal struggles. I must admit that in my young adult years as an avowed atheist, the question was easy to answer. Sick people died, period, end of discussion. But becoming a believer in the reality of God and the truthfulness of his word forced me to confront the question more honestly. I found my resolution of the question in the scriptures. So I'm going to start with the story of Job. It's a very ancient story, probably 1000, 2000 BC. It tells the story of Job, a faithful, loving man who had been blessed by God. He had family, he had wealth, he had health. He was called the greatest of all the people of the East. Job would pray for his children daily and make offerings for them just in case they might have sinned. Just in case. His faith was strong. and God loved him. As the story progresses, we find Job sitting by a fire. His body is covered with sores. He is staring into the flames. His children have been killed in a great storm. His flocks have been killed as well. All his wealth is gone. His children are dead. He is terribly sick. Job's wife tells him to curse God and die. But Job refuses to curse God. Three friends then come to visit Job, and for seven days everything is well. They sit with him. They're coming. To, they're content to be simply there with him. They're coming to support him. Let him know that they care. Then something terrible happens. They start to speak. They start analyzing Job's situation. They begin explaining to Job that his circumstances must be caused by some terrible sin he's committed. After all, they say, God never allows righteous people to suffer like this. Job is offended. And a long series of arguments ensues as they attack and Job defends his innocence. But Job refuses to blame God. He just can't understand it. Why God is his cry. Why? Towards the end of the story, God finally speaks up. At last, we're going to get an answer to our question. Or are we? God first chastises Job's friends for being poor friends. Poor performance as a friend. Their analysis was faulty. Their advice was bad. 
they need to ask Job to forgive them. Then God says to Job, I will question you, and you give me your answers. Have you an arm like God? Can you clothe yourself with glory and splendor as I have clothed the earth? Can you create anything? Can you control nature? If you can do these things, then I'll acknowledge to you that your own right hand can give you the victory over your circumstances. As Job reflects, he realizes that he had, in fact, questioned the power, the wisdom, and integrity of God. And yet, in spite of this, in spite of this, God has spoken to him personally. The upholder of the universe cares so deeply for this lonely man that he offers him the fullness of direct communion. Job's not vindicated, but he has obtained far more than the recognition of his innocence. He's been accepted by the master himself. And having his question answered becomes unnecessary. He has no answer to his question, why God? But he has a wonderful new relationship with his creator. Second story I'd like to recount is the story of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite who married a man from Bethlehem in Judah. The man's mother was named Naomi. Early in the story, we read that Naomi's husband and her two sons died, leaving Naomi with her son's wives, both of them foreigners. They're in a dangerous situation. There's a famine in Moab. Without men to care for them, they could starve. Naomi suggests that the two young women return to their families since she would be a burden to them. She tells them that she will return to Judah alone, hoping to find some way to survive among her family members. One of the women decides to stay in Moab but the other, Ruth, begs Naomi to allow her to accompany her to Judah. We read, Naomi said, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. What love Ruth showed. Faithfulness in the midst of sorrow and pain. Later we hear Naomi bewailing her fate. She sees no hope in her situation. What good could possibly come out of it? We read, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. The whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? 
when the Lord has afflicted me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. The remainder of the story focuses on Ruth and her faithfulness and how God blesses her through her, blesses her, and through her, Naomi is blessed as well. Ruth meets Boaz, a rich farmer. They fall in love. They are married. And at the end of the story, we read in Ruth, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. Out of tragedy, God in his sovereignty works his perfect will. From this marriage came the grandfather of David, the king. And from the line of Naomi, through Ruth, and Boaz, and David, came Jesus, the Messiah. Out of tragedy, Jesus, the Messiah. The book of Hebrews is one of the greatest passages of faith in all of scripture. It's a wonderful passage to reflect on because it's so honest. It doesn't give false hope about faith leading to perfect health and wealth. It tells the stories of people who were honored by God for their faithfulness in spite of the circumstances of life, which often caused them pain, suffering, even death. We read in Hebrews' first two chapters, Two verses. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old received divine approval. The chapter then continues with an exposition of the great heroes of the faith, starting with Abel and Noah, continuing with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, some lesser known heroes, Barak, Jephthah, Gideon, Samson, concluding with David and Solomon and, and Samuel. For each of these people, the author speaks of their faith and how their work for the Lord was accomplished by their faith. But I'd like to focus on verses 35 to 38, which speak of a number of unnamed people. It says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release, that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and scourging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, of whom the world was not worthy. Get that last line, of whom the world was not worthy. Isn't it interesting that those unnamed faithful men and women, tortured, scourged, imprisoned, mocked, ill-treated, and killed, are given this extraordinary praise from God. The world is not worthy of them. Their faith held fast in spite of the trials of life. And God offers special praise to them. 
It's not the winners of the faith that are so honored, but those that to the world at least seem like losers. So what have we learned? From Job we learn that God is God. To deny the power of God is foolish. God has more than enough power to heal every wound and cure every disease, but does not always happen according to our will. And we don't always get satisfying answers to our questions. But faithfulness leads to the greatest gift of all, God's presence with us. From Ruth, we learn that God is sovereign. We can't see the end from the beginning, but God can. He knows the perfect end, and ultimately all will work for good. But we, with our limited perspective on time and space, cannot possibly see as God sees. From Naomi and Ruth's suffering would come the Messiah many generations later. From Hebrews, we learn that there are no guarantees of earthly blessings in our walk of faith. In fact, the greatest praise that God offered was reserved for those that had suffered the most while on earth and yet held to their faith. Does God bless in material ways? Of course. Does God always bless in material ways? No. Why not? I don't know. But God does. And if I believe in a God who can create a universe or create a human being, then I must believe that he's wise enough to make the correct decisions in life. If I believe in a Savior who could suffer and die for me and rise from the grave to give me the hope of eternity with him, then I must believe that he loves me enough to have my ultimate good as his first priority. And that he has in mind the ultimate good of all who have suffered great loss. In spite of the pain, suffering, and loss we face during our lives, we must hold fast to our faith. May his grace be sufficient. The Apostle Paul, late in his life, after struggling with persecution, illness, rejection, after being close to death on several occasions, could write to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul could see that the issue was not whether he had struggles or pain or suffering in this life. That was a given. For him, the issue was having the peace of God in his heart in spite of in spite of those struggles. For Paul, the key was to rejoice in his relationship with God. I'd like to return to C.S. Lewis for a moment. 
When Joy died, Lewis was angry and bitter towards God. He even began to question the goodness of God. Perhaps he is a celestial vivisectionist. His death, his conception of God changed. He wrote, God has not been trying to experiment with my faith and my love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. Lady would write, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. So what did we learn? What did we learn? At the close of Lewis's book, The Last Battle, the Chronicles of Narnia, is this beautiful passage. Aslan, the great lion, represents Christ in this story. He is speaking to the children who have shared great adventures with him as they together participated in the cosmic struggle over good and evil. The battle has been won, and now Aslan speaks to the children. You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? All of you are, as you used to call it, in the Shadowlands. You are dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, all their adventures in Narnia, had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Some time ago, I was listening to some music online and I heard this wonderful little song sung by three little girls down in the mountains of Tennessee. It's called Father Along. And since I've mentioned it to a number of people, I can't tell you how many people said, oh, I remember that song. I got it this morning from our leader up there. It's a beautiful little song. Rich and Julie are going to come. These are my favorite people if you don't know them. This is my son and his beautiful wife. And they sing very well. And they're going to sing the song, Father Along. The chorus is in your bulletin if you want to see the words to the chorus. And I think he's going to encourage you, if you wish, after you get it, to sing along with them. But he's, after he sings this song, then I'll finish the sermon. Father Along.
Remember when uh, little children would ask you a question? And every time you attempted an answer, the child responded, why? You tried another answer, the response was, why? This could go on for a time until frustrated, you replied, because that's the way it is. Then a final why as you walked away. We're like children before the creator of the universe. Our why questions are okay with God, but we may have to settle for a final because that's the way it is. But, as children in loving families know that their parents love them, will never leave them, and that one day their why questions will be answered, so also we as children of a loving God no, God will never leave us or forsake us. And one day we will have our answers. Amen.